So if you've got your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Mark chapter 11. And uh, we're going to be continuing our study in here. We are into the final days of Jesus' ministry before His arrest, before His crucifixion. We've already uh, uh, looked at uh, the triumphal entry that happened on Palm Sunday. And then in these next next weeks, even though we are close to the end, um, Mark goes into some pretty significant detail that's going to take us a little bit of time to all get through. Actually, I had planned this sermon to be a part of the last sermon that we talked about when we looked at uh, the withering of the fig tree and Jesus' um, description about the temple. Um, but then as I was going, I realized that this needed some time all on its own. And so I separated this into two sermons. As I went through what I had scheduled for this week now, uh, from uh, chapter 11, verses 22 to 26, I realized that I'm going to have to break this down even more. So instead of going to 26, today we're just going to read from verse 22 to 24, because um, there's some things in here that I think we need to take a little bit of time and, and chew on a little bit with what Jesus is saying here to his disciples. So Mark chapter 11, verses uh, 22, and we're going to just go down to verse 24. So Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. I love that opening statement. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. We've talked about this a number of times already in this last year, but, but I think it's important for us to recognize again that, that sometimes we get a wrong idea in our minds about what faith actually is. Sometimes it seems, you know, sometimes the way that we use the language, it, it, it's talking about a religious system. So we talk about those who are of the Islamic faith and those who are of the Hindu faith. Um, that is not what Jesus is saying for us here. Sometimes because of the way that, that, that the Bible talks about faith, sometimes it's, we think that it is, that it is a, a, a thing, like it's, it's a, a possession somehow, like something that we need to have. I think, you know, when Jesus says that all it takes is a mustard seed of faith, and this is in another one of, of, the, of the synoptic gospels where he says that even with a mustard seed of faith, you can say to this mountain, Cast yourself into the sea and it will be done. And, and, and so we get this, this thing in our mind that somehow we think faith is, is some, some thing that we need to hold on to. Again, that is, that is not what Jesus is trying to say here in this 
in this passage. He says, have faith in God. Having faith is putting our belief in action. That's, that's essentially what faith is. This week I had the privilege of sitting down and talking with, uh, with Emily and Brandon and talking about their uh, desire to be baptized the way that God had been moving in their hearts and drawing them into that place of, of surrender to Him and recognizing uh, their dependence on Him. Something that you might not know about Brandon and Emily is uh, something that they do for fun is jump out of perfectly good airplanes. They are both skydivers. They're, they've been trained. They can now do solo flights. I think that's, has it just been in this last year that, that they've gotten that certification and been involved in that? Uh, so they're, uh, they love jumping out of planes. And I thought uh, this is a great analogy, um, a great illustration. There are many of us that have seen people jump out of perfectly good airplanes, open up their chute, and lightly land to the ground. And there's many of us that would say we believe that those parachutes will actually hold somebody and carry them safely from far, far up in the sky and carry them safely to the ground. We believe that. How many of you have actually done that? Actually jumped out of a perfectly good plane? There are a few that have done that. Those people have acted in faith. Belief is that, yeah, I could do it. Faith is actually jumping out of the plane with a parachute on. I recommend that. <laughs> Faith is actually doing it. And that's, that's what Jesus is calling us to here. Have faith in God. Live your life in the awareness of your absolute dependence and need for God in every aspect of your life. Know that, that it is because of your sin that you were separated from God. But through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, He has made a way for once again to have communion with Him. And so live your life trusting that Jesus' sacrifice has paid the penalty for your sin. I guess I don't know people's hearts, but I, I would suggest to you that there are many who believe that, who believe that Jesus has sacrificed himself for them, but they aren't living like it. They are still living their lives depending on their own ability to get by, depending on their own ability, their own good works to be able to outweigh their bad works, rather than resting in the completed work of Jesus Christ End, stop, full, period, whatever you have to say, that's it. Have faith in God. Put your belief in action. So faith is putting our belief in action. 
Now, you might argue, <laughs> and, and I would say that you have a pretty good argument, that just because you put your faith in something doesn't mean that you're all going to be okay. Those who jump out of perfectly good airplanes are taking a risk. They are putting their trust in fallible equipment. We know that that can go wrong. That there can be something with, wrong with the equipment that they have strapped on their back that could result in them landing not so softly on earth. There could be something, uh, the, the person who packed it, either themselves or somebody else who packed their parachute, if they did that incorrectly, the chute doesn't open. They don't land nice and safely on the ground. So, so it's probably not a bad argument to say jumping out of a perfectly good airplane is not a good idea. Because there are... There is potential for things to go very wrong. Putting your faith in a parachute, in something that is potentially fallible, is going to get you into trouble. And that goes for all aspects of our lives. There are lots of people who put their faith in all kinds of good things, but things that are fallible. If your faith is in this church, in this community of believers, that because you are a part of this group, that you are okay with God. I want you to know, we are fallible. We can lead you astray. Worse yet, we could do or say things that would be very hurtful to you, that could compromise your faith. Putting your faith in this church, in this group, putting your faith in me, that, that the things that I am telling you are actually all true. I am <laughs> fallible. And I get things wrong. And so putting your faith in me or some other speaker or pastor or, or writer, author, uh, in any of those other things, you are putting your faith in something that is fallible. And you will be disappointed. The only thing that we should be putting our faith in is just as Jesus said, put your faith in God because He never fails. He will never do anything that will destroy your faith. He'll challenge it. It'll allow you to go through some difficult times. Some of the things that he says will be hurtful. But they will be hurtful for good. Because it's through that hurt that we would then be refined. 
that we would be sanctified, that we would be purified so that those things that are in our lives that, that are getting in the way with our relationship with Him can be stripped away, can be pulled back, can be cut away from our lives so that we can be free and experience true relationship with God. So when we have faith in God, you can know that you will never be disappointed. So, so it's important to have faith, to, to put action or, or to put belief into action. It's important to have faith in the right object, in the right person, in God Himself. But as we also read through Scripture, that, that we can have faith with wrong motivations. And that gets in the way. James chapter 4. Uh, there James, uh, Jesus' brother, uh, is talking about a, a number of different things. And, and as some of you may know, James is, is always a little bit challenging to get a hold of because he's always talking in, in circles and, and coming back to things over and over again. Uh, but James chapter 4, verses 2 to 3, we read this. Uh, halfway through verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And, and when we look at this passage, uh, that Jesus says here where he says, therefore I tell you, in verse 24, therefore I tell you whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. There are many people that have read that passage and read that promise and misunderstood it because of their wrong motivations. Because there were things that they wanted and asked for. But the reason that they wanted those things was for their own pleasures, for their own lusts, for their own passions, rather than for what God really wanted. And those can be, can be clothed in all kinds of really good outward appearances. People praying that they will be successful, uh, that they would be financially wealthy so that then they would be more able to give generously to needs and, and ministries and things like that. They make it look all very pretty that, that what they are wanting to do is to be generous, but really at the heart of it is they're looking to be rich. There are, there are some people who have prayed for people to be healed to have infirmity, diseases, even emotional or, or, or mental uh, unhealth to be taken away. And their motivations might look good, but ultimately it's just about having a softer, more comfortable life. And they're not really paying attention to what God wants for them. That God may be using this 
this infirmity in their lives to do that refining work, to do that purifying work. And so they're praying out of their own passions rather than actually listening to the Spirit and seeing what He is saying and how He is directing and what purposes He has for them or the ones that they are praying for. So we need to, uh, we need to make sure that not only do we have faith, belief in action, that we have faith in the, the right object in God, but we also need to make sure that we have faith with the right motivations. And that's a tough one. How, how do we make sure that our motivations are pure? It's actually through faith. <laughs> it's having faith in God. Trusting that He is doing that purifying work in you. That it's not up to you to make sure that you have all the right motivations, but instead that you are looking to Him and trusting that He is transforming your heart and listening for His voice to then direct the ways that you should pray, the way that you should respond to the circumstances and situations in which you find yourself. When you are listening to the Spirit and He directs, the, 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 uh, the direction of your prayer, you can know that He is never going to lead you astray. You can, have, <laughs> you can have faith that He is going to answer that prayer, that He is going to direct you, and that He is going to lead you into a place where you have the pure motivations, where you are acting without selfishness, without pride, but in His perfect way. This is, this is an interesting story. When Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Wouldn't it have been really convenient if Jesus at that point actually carried that out. There's a, a multitude of what were classified as mountains right around him. We know he was on his way from Bethany back to Jerusalem. It was morning. They had just passed the fig tree. Could have been anywhere around, perhaps the Mount of Olives. Um, there's a number of other mountains all around in that area. Jerusalem itself is built on a mountain. The temple was on Mount Moriah. Jesus could have said to any one of those mountains, if, if, if he really wanted to emphasize his point, it would have been really cool for him to actually lift one of those mountains and send it the 60 kilometers and crashing into the Mediterranean Sea. Maybe he did. Now hear me out. I, 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 this is something that, that, that came up for me as I was reading through this passage. I was reading through some of the, uh, the commentaries and, and some of the other literature on this passage. Um, nobody else 
talked about this. Um, and so that puts me on shaky ground right there. But the more that I looked at this, I looked at the context of all of this verse, the more I am becoming convinced that this is, this is actually what Jesus was talking about. Um, now that means you are fully welcome to disagree with me. Um, if you, if you want to challenge me, please talk with me. Let's, let's hash this out. But first of all, just listen. Let me put together my argument. What is the context of this verse? Ever since Jesus has entered into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry there on Palm Sunday, the temple has played a significant feature in the narrative that Mark is, is telling here for us. As soon as Jesus came in from, uh, from the uh, triumphal entry, it says there, verse 11 of chapter 11, they entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And Marcus shared with us, where did he go? Oh, there he is. Uh, Marcus shared with us how Jesus was scoping out the corruption that was within the temple. And then we get to the next passage where Jesus curses the fig tree. And we talked about how that is a, a, an acted parable of Jesus' condemnation of the temple. That the fig tree was the temple and because there was no fruit in that temple that He cursed it. Even though uh, there, it wasn't necessary the season because we know that the temple was already on its way out because Jesus Himself had come and it wasn't the season necessarily. He still had the expectation. There was still all of the, the, the signs that there should be a place that you can go to the temple to connect with God. There should be some fruit there even though it would be small and weak and not full-blown full figs. And when there was no fruit, he cursed the tree. And then right from there, goes into that uh, account of Jesus coming into the temple and, and cleansing the temple and, and condemning them for turning this house of prayer, this place where people should be able to come and connect with God and how they turned it into a den of robbers. Taking advantage of people. Abusing uh, the whole understanding. And, and there were those, those that were in leadership over the temple who had totally lost the concept of what their role was and, and was just seeing this as an opportunity to fill their own pockets. There was no fruit there. And so Jesus condemns the temple. The temple, as I said a little bit earlier, for those of you that have been to Jerusalem, Know that it is on a mountain, Mount Moriah. There's really good evidence and strong tradition that that is the very place where Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice his son. There's also a lot of other connections with Mount Moriah, but it is a mount. In fact, they still call it the Temple Mount. So it is a mountain. Jesus has just gone through this process of cleansing the temple, of declaring that it is no longer bearing any fruit. 
and he has condemned it. It, it. it is almost like this is the mountain that Jesus is identifying. Praying certain that God would do it. That he would pull up this mountain and cast it into the sea. Now that's the start of it. When he says, cast it into the sea. One of the things that we know from apocalyptic passages of Scripture, of, of prophetic words that, that, that God has done in the Old and the New Testament, that the sea represents the Gentile nations. The, the chaos of all of the pagan religions and all of the, 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 the ways that, that humanity has rebelled against God. So Jesus is saying that if you say to this mountain, and I'm suggesting that he's talking about the temple mount, that it be torn up and cast into the sea, is that this temple, this mount will be destroyed and will be given under the control of the Gentile nations. And we know, as of 70 AD, when Titus, the soon-to-be emperor, came into Rome to put down the final rebellion of the, the people of Israel, that the temple was indeed destroyed. Jesus, we're going to read in a couple of weeks, Jesus is going to talk about how no stone is going to be left on top of another. And that's exactly what happened. That, that as they burned the temple, all of the, 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 the multitude of gold that was in that temple seeped into the cracks and into the mortar of all of the, the temple. And so the soldiers, trying to get as much as they could, tore the stones one from another so they could pull all of that gold out of those cracks and have that for themselves. Ever since that time, there has never been Jewish oversight over the Temple Mount, over the Temple itself. It has always been under Gentile control. So when Jesus says, say to this mountain, cast you into the sea, and it will happen, I'm suggesting to you that Jesus actually did that. The thing is, we were expecting that He would actually do it, that we could actually see it, that what He was speaking about was actually tearing a, a mountain up from its roots and actually physically throwing it into the sea. But He, he, he fulfilled this prophecy in a way that, that we weren't really expecting. And I want to suggest to you that that helps us a little bit understand about prayers of faith. Is that sometimes when we pray with something specific in our mind that we feel the Spirit is leading us to pray for, whether that is healing of somebody who is sick, Perhaps it is, it is healing of, of a marriage that is broken. Perhaps it's, it's prayer for, for a soul that we love, that we care for, that has drifted so far from God, and we just long to see them come back. That when we pray for that, we have a, a specific thing in mind, a specific way that that should be fulfilled. 
But God has a very different purpose in mind. My uncle Ferd was an, was an amazingly gifted musician. He had a he had a passion for music and, and a, a gift and a, and a passion for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to as many people as he could. Back in the 60s, he started up a choir in Calgary. It's called the Berg Chorale. And they, for the next almost 40 years, traveled around Western Canada singing and, and proclaiming the goodness of Jesus in as many places as they could. Um, he had a powerful ministry. And, and regularly in their uh, meetings that they would have, when they would go into churches, when they would go into community centers and they would put on a performance there, they would invite people to pray. And they were seeing God do some amazing miracles uh, through, the, through the prayers, through the ministry of, of, of the, the choir members, of Uncle Ferd specifically. And it was exciting to be a part of. So when Uncle Ferd was diagnosed with a very rare form of leukemia, the choir came around him and prayed. And they were, they were diligent in their prayer. They, they fasted, they were praying, and, and through that process, they had a, a clear picture of Uncle Ferd being healed that he would be rid of this leukemia and it would be uh, a message of, of, of God's power, his healing ability to all of the people who would see him afterwards, who would come to hear the choir and they could hear Uncle Ferd's testimony of how he had this terrible leukemia and God had set him free and healed him. And, and just imagine how many people would come to faith through that. So when Uncle Ferd passed away, succumbing to his leukemia, there were many who were devastated. Who believed that God had let them down. They, they had prayed with faith, believing that God would do it. Many of them continued to pray. And there were those that even felt that God was saying that, that, he was, that, that, that Uncle Ferd was going to be raised from the dead. And wouldn't that be a powerful testimony? That, that, that that's why they had been praying all along, that, that, that Uncle Ferd would come back to life after succumbing to this disease. And, and, and then he would be able to go out. It's been... 30 some odd years. Um, and Uncle Ferd hasn't been raised from the dead yet. But I can stand here with confidence to say that my Uncle Ferd is alive. That it, he is absolutely free from the ravages of leukemia. <laughs> that He is in the presence of His Savior, gathered with all of the saints 
singing out in beautiful harmony his praise and his wonder of his Lord and Savior. You see, that's not what we wanted. We, we believe that, that when we got that picture that, that Uncle Ferd would be healed, that he would actually be healed on earth here. That, that, that when he would be raised from the dead, that we would actually be able to wrap our arms around him once again. But God had a very different understanding of how he was going to fulfill and answer those prayers. And they are just as powerful and just as, as meaningful as if Uncle Ferd would stand here and sing in his beautiful bass voice for you here this morning. See, sometimes, sometimes when we are praying, we have expectations of how God is going to answer the prayer. When he does it differently, we get rattled. Let me say something that is probably more accurate in my own life as well. Is because I don't know exactly how God is going to answer those prayers. I'm very quiet and very secretive of the way that I pray. So that I don't look foolish that I don't cause people to have crisis of faith. There were some people who expecting Uncle Ferd to, to be healed, to be raised from the dead, when he didn't, have drifted far from God because they were holding on to their expectations and their own passions rather than listening to what the Holy Spirit was saying and seeing what He was doing in their lives. And, and, and in fear of creating more of those kinds of scenarios, oftentimes when I pray, it's quiet, it's secretive, or, or I don't pray at all. And I would say that that's probably, that's probably a failure on a lot of more conservative churches is that we have limited God because we're not sure how He's going to answer those prayers. And so we haven't prayed with the kind of conviction and the kind of certainty that we should. We need to have faith in God. So when we pray, when we are, 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 are confronted with an opportunity where we see a need in somebody's life, we need to first of all pray and ask God to show us how He wants us to pray for that person. It's okay to share our heart with God and say, Lord, I would love to see this person be healed. I, I care for them. I want to see them freed from this infirmity. But how do you want me to pray for them? So that I'm not following my own passions, I'm not following my own agenda, but I am listening to the Spirit and following where He would guide me. But when I hear the Spirit, when He says, pray that we would be healed, 
Pray that that marriage would be reconciled. Pray that that loved one would come to faith, that they would discover for themselves the truth of Jesus' love for them and His sacrifice, that they would receive that grace as a free gift by faith. Then jump out of the plane. Pray. Pray believing that God will do it. And it may not be in the time, and it may not be in the way that you are picturing But God will answer. And He will accomplish His purposes. And so we need to pray with faith, believing that He will do it. What are you praying for in your life right now? What are the things that that weigh heavy on your heart in these days? Let me encourage you, have faith in God. Faith that He will direct how you should pray for those needs. And then as you hear Him speak to you and direct your heart and direct the way that you should pray, have faith that He will do it. And pray with boldness. Don't hang on to the strut of the plane while you're flapping along. Let go. Jump in. Go all out. And allow Him to transform your life. You can be certain that He will answer that prayer. That He will work in a way that fits perfectly into His plan and His purposes. So Pray with confidence and look forward to seeing Him accomplish those things in your lives. Let's pray. I want to give you an opportunity right now to lay those things out before God. You know what's weighing on your heart right now. What are the concerns that that are troubling you. Take some time. Ask the Lord to show you how He wants you to pray. And then with boldness, jump out of the plane. Thank You, God, that You are faithful. That You are trustworthy. That You promise that that if anybody lacks wisdom, that all we need to do is ask and You will give generously. 
we are asking for your wisdom to know how to pray for these things that are so dear to us. We pray that you would help us to hear how you are speaking, what, how you are directing the way that we would pray for those things. And then that you would give us the courage and the strength to pray with boldness, without doubting, but certainty to know that you will do it. So it's with joy that we lay these requests at the foot of the cross. And we anticipate how you will answer. How you will accomplish it. And we will give you all of the praise and all of the glory. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen.